chapter 6, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 23. 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 23. The passage that we're looking at today is one of those Old Testament passages that we look at and we say, huh? Well, you know, look, we read passages like this, and often when we read them, we either skim over it real quick and say, well, you know, I, I don't get that, or let me just move over to Jesus to in, the, in the New Testament. Let me, let me look at something that's either more understandable or makes more sense to me, because there's some difficult stuff in this passage. There's some hard stuff in this passage, and yet it would be a mistake to skip over it. Because God has some powerful lessons for us in his word today. So if you are physically able, would you please stand in honor and reverence of the reading of God's word. And I'm going to be uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 6, 2 Samuel. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went up to Balah in Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ohio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has, because the ark of God. So David went up to the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord were, had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And the ark of the Lord was, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael's son, excuse me, Michael's daughter of Saul watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. 
And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave them a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michael, It is before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and for what it teaches us, both positively and negatively. The reinforcements and the rewards. Father, I pray that we would take these things to heart and so that our worship might be even more pleasing to you and our hearts might be aligned with yours. God, we pray and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. As we think about this passage today, it has a lot to tell us about worship. And there's a lot of positive things that we could learn about worship. There could be a, a whole nother sermon, one about the good things. We could, we could hear about the planning that went into this worship. I guarantee you 30,000 people involved in this service, at least the first one, and all the, all the instrumentalists and, 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 and everything, all the pomp and circumstance. There was tons of planning that went into the worship, and that is a great thing. We have In worship, we have to balance out preparation with the leading of the Holy Spirit. Both of those are vital. Uh, there was passion in this worship service, and that is a great thing, too. The fact that this was not a dead, somber. Now, now by the way, there is times of worship can be different things. There can be a, a, a somber or repentant worship, but there can also be a, a praise and a passionate worship. And this is what it was. And there was a lot of that. We hear about these, these men of Israel dancing before the Lord with all their might. The word translated dancing actually literally means whirling. I mean, these folks were, they were just giving it their all before the Lord, praising God. They were overjoyed that the ark of the Lord was coming back to them. And there, there was, there was a, a sense of, at least in the, in the final gesture, the second journey, there was a sense of repentance as well. And, and there were sacrifice and offering being made. So there's a lot of good things that we could learn of how to worship. But today, I want us to focus on the worship killers, the things that when we get caught up in, when we get into these things and start to do or think these things, these things destroy the life of worship. And so I want us to talk about three worship killers today. The first one is disrespect 
or irreverence for God, if you want to use a, a bigger churchier word, but disrespect for God. We read this passage, and one of the reasons it's an it's a odd or difficult passage for us is because we read it and say, well, that fella Uzzah, he was just a good guy. He was trying to help out. And the Ark of the Covenant, it slipped off the cart. And, and he was there to catch it. And God struck him dead. Well, how in the world would God do that? I mean, how fair is that? What, what, what kind of God would do that? And so we read without context, without really thinking through. And it's very interesting whenever we start to judge God that we only have a sense of justice in us because we were made in God's image and he's the ultimate judge. So it's always completely ironic when we start to judge God for his actions because he's the source of all justice and goodness in this world. But not to mention that, that we gotta be careful that, to realize we don't always know the bigger picture, especially if we don't look at the context. But see, there's more to this story than just, oh, he was a good guy who reached out and tried to help, you know, catch the ark. You see, if you go back and you begin to read First and Second Samuel, there is a whole big uh, uh, saga, you could say, about stuff that happened with the ark. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was originally created to hold those tablets, the, the commandments that God gave to Moses for the people. And on top of this Ark, there were, there were some uh, angels there facing one another. And basically, this became known as the throne of God. We know that God doesn't have a physical body. We know that he's a spirit. We know that he's everywhere. And yet he said, this is a place that my spirit is going to dwell in a special way. So this was a holy, holy thing. Thing. And by the way, just there might be some of you, maybe kids. I know I always wondered this in church. I was like, wait, there's an ark that floats and it's big and, and animals are on it. And then there's this ark that goes in the temple. Why are they both called an ark? Guess what? Ark just means box, okay? Or box of God, chest of God, whatever. The ark with the animals was a huge watertight box that just floated. Well, this box was a holy box that there those tablets were in, and God's presence was set, uh, said to be there in a special way. This was considered the throne of God, even though we know God doesn't have a physical body, God is spirit, but this was his body. So this was a very special thing. When we look at the disrespect for God's chest, for God's holy throne, uh, you can go all the way back, but let's just start it first in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through 6. There's a story about Eli, the prophet, uh, and the, he was a judge as well. There's a story about Eli's sons, Phineas and Hophni, and they weren't good guys. Uh, they, the apple fell far from the tree, let's say. They weren't good guys. The Bible tells us about all kind of bad behavior they did. But here's the stupidest thing they did. They were having a little bit of war with the Philistines, you know, those folks that Goliath came from. And, and the Israelites always seemed to be battling and fighting with these guys. And so they, they said, hey, things aren't going so well. I know what we do. We have the ultimate weapon, we're going to pull out the holy ark of God. And if we do that, 
We're going to just use God's power and we'll be unbeatable. You know, that would have been fine if God said for them to take the ark. But God did not tell them to do that. They just thought they would use God and get his power without honoring and worshiping and magnifying him. So on their own, they come up with this uh, idle-brained idea. And they get the thing. They go to war. And at first, it seemed like it was going to work. Because the Bible tells us that the Philistines heard about this plan. And they're like, Oh, man, we are dead meat now. Do you remember what their God did to the Egyptians and all the plagues? Because the whole, the whole ancient Near East knew the stories of how powerful God was and what he had done to the Egyptians and how he had brought them out of the land. And they were starting to say, oh, man, this is terrible. This is bad. They're going to kill us. But then they kind of said, so it's really, really hard but guess what? You guys are going to go out and give it your all. I mean, this is like the best halftime talk you've ever heard. This Philistine general gives, and he gets the Philistine general, all the troops all riled up, and they go out, and they massacre about 30,000 Israelites, and they take the Ark of God. They take the Ark of the Covenant, and they take it back to the Philistines. And they so disrespect it that they say, oh, it's just a God like any other God. We're going to stick it in one of our temples along with our God. And some weird stuff started happening. And the, first, the, the, the first day after they stuck it in there, they go back and they, they see the ark and they see their God, except for the head of their God is down on the floor now. And they fix it back up and they go back in there next day. The whole, all of its limbs have been torn off and it's all gone. And they're like, what's going on? And before long, the Bible says that everybody in this Philistine city is filled with tumors all over their body. There's a rat infestation in the city. And, before, and they're like, we're not too smart, but hey, this might have something to do with that Israelite God and this object that we took. And they take it to another city. They say, um, we've had a good time with this Israelite thing, but we'd like to share it with you now. And they take it to another city, and the same thing happens. And it happens again, and by then, word is getting out. And all the Philistines are saying, we don't want it. Our city was infested with rats. Our people are coming down with these terrible tumors and diseases. We got to get rid of this. The God of Israel is tearing us up. And so finally, they come up with this plan, and they say, we're going to put this thing on a brand new cart and hook it up to oxen, and we're going to see which way the oxen take this thing. And if they bring it back to us in our city, then it means, oh, this was all just a bunch of coincidence somehow. But if it leaves and these oxen on their own go straight toward Israelite territory, then we know we need to be rid of this thing. And they put it on there, and of course, the oxen take it straight back to the Israelites. And so they all breathe a sigh of relief. We are done with that Israelite God. We are not disrespecting him anymore. But the problem is, while the Philistines had learned their lesson, at least for a while, the Israelites themselves had not learned a lesson. Because when it comes back into Israelite territory, people get excited. This is awesome. And, you know, it had always been protected in a special place by the leaders, the judges, the priests, whoever. Somebody was always looking over and taking care of this. But now, hey, it's not behind any gate or anything else. We can all come look at it. And they said, let's look inside. 
How many of you have watched Raiders of the Lost Ark? Looking inside the ark is not a good idea. And say, here is where those folks from that movie got this idea. No, it doesn't tell us there weren't any Nazis there. And and, and there weren't, we don't know about a bunch of spirits coming out and no melty stuff going on. But the Bible says that 70 people took God's holy box, which they were supposed to respect, and they were not supposed to mess with, and they all said, hey, Let's look inside. This will be fun. And every single person that looked inside died. So you would think at this point that they would say, we better treat this with respect. We had better take care of this Ark of the Covenant the way that God told us to take care of it. But they didn't. You see the whole thing about it slipping off the card and sliding forward? God had given very specific instructions about how the ark was to be carried. And there were some poles. It shows a picture some of you saw in the front of your bulletin. There were rings on the outside of the ark, and there were poles that went through. And people were supposed to carry the ark by holding onto those poles and to never touch the ark. But instead... Instead of following God's instructions, they said, hey, the Philistines put it on a cart. We'll put it on a cart. And you see, we often, as Christians, end up following and copying the ways of the world and the ways of the ungodly without even thinking about it. I kind of have this idea that, that they never even considered carrying it any other way. They just said, well, it was on a cart when we got it. We'll just keep carrying it on a cart. But that's not what God had told them to do. God had very clearly, very specifically said, this is the way that you handle my throne. And they disobeyed and they disrespected And so all the passion, all the spectacle, all the planning, all the other stuff that you could see was good stuff meant nothing if they were disobedient to God's clear commands. And see, I know a lot of believers today who will talk about how they love Jesus and and they'll, woo, I love my church, I love Jesus. They might even like their pastor. Isn't that a great thing? But What they do is, I rah, 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 God, Jesus, church. But on this thing over here, you know, this is the way I like to do things. I know there's a command somewhere, but, you know, we're in a modern day. Or, you know, this is the way my family's always done it. Or this is the way I like to do things. And we clearly disrespect God. We dishonor him. We show irreverence when God has clearly said, this is my way. And we think, yeah, you're God, but I've got a better way. And disrespect, irreverence for God kills worship. Second thing that kills worship is anger. You ever tried to worship angry And I know none of you are like, none of you have ever walked into the church after having a fight in the car. I know that's never happened. You've never come from a bad morning at home or you've never come in bitter and angry because God didn't come through on something you thought he should or because maybe this thing happened to you or somebody said something to you or, you know, you felt less than respected. What? You know, I know that's never happened to you, but if it does ever happen, I will tell you you're going to have a hard time worshiping. 
Because anger simply isn't compatible with the heart of worship. Anger, (laughs) the Bible says, man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. You know, we may even think, well, no, I'm I'm not angry. I am a, what's that that word for? I'll think of it in a minute. But, uh, you know, righteous indignation, that's it. I've got righteous indignation. No, you're angry. You're just angry. You're just mad, okay? It's nothing holy about it when we get angry. And the Bible doesn't say that it's a sin to get angry, but it has a lot of warnings about what can happen when we're angry. It has, has a lot to say, be slow to anger. It has a lot to say, in your anger, don't sin. It has a lot to say about getting rid of that anger. That's the whole phrase about not letting your, the sun go down on your anger. By the way, that's not God's permission to say, oh, it's 10 a.m. in the morning. I got all day to be angry at my husband about this. Or I got all day to be angry at my wife or my boss or whoever. Uh, uh-uh. That's a, God is saying, get rid of that anger as soon as you can. Work through it, pray about it, process it, but don't stay angry because you're in a temptation zone. So this whole thing happens. Uzzah reaches out to grab, and he looks to see, you know, to grab it, and God strikes him down, the Bible says, because of his irreverent act. So this anger, it comes out from David. He's so mad. <laughs> he even comes up with a new name for this town. We don't even know what the old town was. But the new name is basically translated, it's God breaks out against Uzzah. God smashed Uzzah. God destroyed Uzzah. That's what the, the translation of it basically means. And he was so angry because all of his planning and and all of his this and that and the other, that he wanted to have this big thing, this big show of of returning it. And, you know, I'm just sitting here doing a good thing, and this happens. He has a huge anger and pity party. And then the Bible says, and then he began to fear God. Now, Fear of God in the right way, the Bible talks about fear of God as the beginning of wisdom. What that is, is a proper respect and reverence for God. I don't think that's where David was at that first point. I think his, he went from anger that I'm so mad this happened to, oh my goodness, this could happen to me too. I could get struck down, any little thing I could do. And he, he, he makes this big proclamation. I can't even bring the ark to my house anymore. I can't bring it to my city. Maybe I get zapped too. But the Bible says that, that the ark, where it stayed, where it stayed, and he wouldn't take it any further. In that house, that house began to prosper. And that house began to be blessed. And that house began to do well. And David's attitude and his heart changed. Now, here's what I think happened between the lines. I think David, who started off angry with God and then kind of fearful of God, thinking he's some baddie, and then he starts to see the way God has blessed this household where the ark has stayed. I think David came to this point where he realized, I should have been angry at me, because I planned this whole thing. I put together this whole thing. 
As king of Israel, I had the power and the responsibility to make sure every single thing went according to God's ways. And I didn't. I just copied what the pagans did and disrespectfully put that on the, on the ox cart instead of handled it the way it should have been handled. And I believe that David went through a point of repentance in his heart. And you know why I say that? Because when the Bible tells us that when he goes back to get the ark again, it doesn't say they loaded it back on the cart. It says when they carried the ark. You see, David had learned his lesson. He had realized at this point, I was mad at God when I was wrong. And I'm going to tell you once again, I know you guys don't ever do this, but I've been in a place in my life before when I've been angry at God until I realized I should have been angry at myself. When I realized that the things happening in my life because I was butting heads with God and rebelling against him and going the wrong way. And we so often we want to defend ourselves to the very last. The whole, that's my story and I stick into it. That kind of line, you know, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to go all the way. And, and we don't admit, we don't admit, we don't admit. And some point, guess what? God knows. You may fool your parents, you may fool your boss, you may fool your spouse, but God knows. And eventually, one of two things are, ha- are going to happen. You're going to live in rebellion to God the rest of your life and always be distant and never experience closeness with him. Or you're going to break down and say, I was wrong. I was wrong, God. I did things my way and I didn't consult your way. And I didn't think it'd be a big deal if I just made up my own agenda. But God, I was wrong. And when the rest of the story goes on, we see that God, that David, not only did they load the ark, carry it the right way, that they made both burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And in other words, he did the kind of offerings you do when you're saying, God, I'm sorry for my sins, as well as he did the kind of offerings you do when you're saying, God, I want to be in fellowship and be right with you. David had to get to this point where he got over this anger at God and realized his own responsibility. And guess what, folks? Even if you're angry at God and you can't ever see what your part in something was, you still don't have the big picture. God has the big picture. And he may choose to fill you in on that one day on the other side of glory. But there's going to be a lot of things that happen in your life that are not going to make sense to you. There's things that happen to me that are not going to make sense to me. That's shocking, right? Genius that I am. It should all make sense to me, right? But somehow God chooses to do some things that are over my head, and I'm not going to get it. And so I'm going to have a choice to make when I come to those things. Am I, going to admit, am I going to think that I'm smarter than God and I know it all, and therefore I can hold a grudge against him and be angry to him? Or am I going to admit as high as the, the Bible says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways above our ways. And I humbly say to God, God, I don't get it. God, I'm upset. God, I'm frustrated. But you know what, God? I know that you are holy and you are just and you do all things well. And so I'm going to trust you to heal my wounds. And I'm going to apologize where I've spoken against you or held a grudge against you. And God, this is yours. Do I lay it on the altar and say, God, I give you this, even though it hurts and even though I don't get it? And that's what David eventually did, I believe. Or am I just going to keep walking in rebellion against him? 
because you can't worship God in a spirit of anger. Finally, third and final worship killer is critique. Critique. One of the saddest things about worship, what we call worship, is that for so many people, it's a performance. And they're the critic. And they come and sit in their spot, and they review what they like and what they don't like. What people are wearing, how much or how little. How, are they in style? Are they not? Is it good or bad? Or do, Did the things that people did, did were they too dead? Were they too alive? And they, every single thing, they believe they are the head critic. And it's their job to just get everybody, set everybody straight. There's an old saying about kids, you know, people saying, What's, uh, what do most people have for, uh, for, for lunch after uh, worship? The pastor, you know, he's roasted, you know, or, or the worship leader or whatever. Because sometimes we leave church and we're critique, 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 critique. Oh, did you see what they wore? Did you hear what he said? And a posture of critique will kill worship. When we become cynical, when we become judgmental, and we come in this place not open, tenderhearted, ready for God to critique us and correct us and rebuke us and make us more like him, but rather we set ourselves up as God and we are ready to judge the worship of God Almighty, we have destroyed any chance of us being able to worship. And the end of this message, this passage here, He's coming back. Michael, who is the daughter, I know, weird name for a woman, right? But Mike spelled a little different. But Michael, who's the daughter of Saul, who David won her hand through the acts of heroism and all these, these you know, like in the old days, if you go kill the dragon, you get the hand of my daughter. Well, it's kind of like this. He sent him to, to go back and to do all these things. David did what he's supposed to do. He married Michael. Well, she wasn't in the procession. She wasn't there even on the side of the street. She was up in her high and lofty place in the castle, I suppose. I don't know. It just says she looks out of the window and she sees David as he's dancing before the Lord. And the Bible says she despised him. She despised him. Rather than joining in the worship, rather than saying, oh, that's, wow, my husband's so excited, she despised him because she thought he was a little bit undignified, a little bit vulgar, a little bit common. See, she was a wife to a king and the daughter of the king, and in her heart, we need to do things proper. We need to always maintain our dignity. And David had shed his pride and shed his dignity and his fine clothes. And he was there dancing before the Lord. And David said, look, I'm not here to be seen as the king today. I'm just worshiping just like everybody else all out. I'm so excited 
that finally we've gotten over our stupidity, that finally we've repented of our arrogance, of our disrespect, of our anger, and I'm here to get things right with God. It's not about me. It's about worshiping him. But that's not what she could see. All Michael was there to do was to judge. And that type of spirit, that critical spirit will kill worship. By the way, it'll do more than that. It'll kill relationships. It'll kill families. It'll kill working together with someone. If you have a critical nature, you're killing any life, any joy, any peace in the relationship you have with God or anybody else. When you get to this point that your job is to judge and critique and all you can ever think is about the negative rather than You miss the whole positive going on. You find the one little thing that's bad, and that's what you want to harp on. You are killing your family, your friends, your marriage, your work environment, and for sure you are killing the spirit of worship in a church when you come in to critique, to judge. You know what David said? David really, David messed up a lot of times in his life, but he got this one right. He said, I was dancing, not for these servant girls that you're apparently making a big deal of, that they saw their king kind of undignified. I was dancing before the Lord. And these servant girls, he said, you know what? I have more honor from them than I do from my own wife because they saw they were there to worship as well. And they saw my heart and my attitude. And you were there, my wife. You were judging me. And the Bible goes on to say, this isn't just a random comment. Basically, the last verse of this passage say, <clears throat> goes on and says, and she never had a child her whole life. In other words, barrenness, desolation is what comes from a critical spirit. Now, we don't know whether God said your spirit is critical and and I'm going to supernaturally close your womb and you'll never have a child. Or very likely after that situation right there, David said, I'm not coming back to see you again. And that destroyed their relationship because... A critical nature destroys relationships just as it destroys a worship, a spirit of worship. But either way, the, the Bible puts that in there for us to know that a critical nature leads to desolation. It leads to a dry and dreary and awful place that we don't want to be. And so if you don't want to go there, if you don't want to live a barren life, and I'm not just talking about, it's, it's way bigger than just physical having children. This is about a life of fruitfulness, a life of productivity, a life that has joy and peace and all the things God wants for us. Then we have to engage with God, worshiping him. You see, if her focus was on God, she'd have been great. But rather than worshiping God, she was critiquing David. There's some stuff here that happens in this. It's, it's a crazy passage. I mean, you make for a great movie. There's so much going on. And again, there's a lot of good stuff happening. But if we catch these things here in this text that, that 
tell us what not to do. Don't just casually disregard God's laws and then be surprised when things don't go well. Don't walk around in a spirit of anger and bitterness and then be surprised if there's no worship, if there's no life, if you can't really approach God. And don't walk around with this critical nature, a judgmental spirit, and be surprised when your life is empty and barren because those things will destroy relationships with God and with man. Worship killers, avoid these things if you want to have the type of worship and relationship with God that is blessed and that is fruitful. Pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, you've called us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And that means that our attitude matters and our actions matter. As the psalmist said, Lord, let the meditations of our heart, let the words of our lips be pleasing to you. Father, take away, remove the thick-headedness, the stiff neck, the stubbornness that, that keeps us from seeing what we need to fix. Open our eyes, remove the scales from them, allow us to see where we've rebelled against you, where we've gone wrong. God, give us spirits of repentance where we humbly admit, where we throw away our pride and we come before you and say, God, it's you and me, and God, you're in the right. You're the great judge. You're the holy God. Father, help us to get rid of that pride, to come before you humbly, to recognize you are holy and we are flawed. And when there's a problem, it's on our part. And God, help us to realize we've got all we can handle working on our own relationship with God so we don't need to judge other people in their relationship with you. Cleanse our hearts, Lord. Bring us to a spirit of repentance and revival, God so that we may worship you with all of our hearts as these men with David danced before you, as they worshiped with all of their hearts. May we worship with all of our hearts. May we please you, we pray, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.